Hi, welcome to the Back the Truck Up podcast. I'm here with Rooster James Bowen, uh, along hey, with Jason hey. and, and Carrie Kraft, uh, two truck drivers from Canada who recently had to get out of driving their own rig because of maintenance costs. Jason, Carrie, thanks for coming aboard. Uh, thanks for having us. So, you know, with supply chain issues and everything we're seeing lately, the, the cost of trying to maintain any vehicle and fleet has really gone up over the years. What uh, what happened with, with your guys' truck? Uh, it's been kind of a long process. Like these last six months, we've been down more than we've been up. Like just uh, finding parts have been things that a couple of years ago would have been just a couple hour job. It's you need a starter or something like that. You roll into a Freightliner dealership and say, oh, yeah, we got a dozen of them on a the shelf. Throw it in and away you go. Now you're waiting three weeks or more. Like can't even tell you when a starter is going to land. And it's not the price of the part that kills you. It's the fact that you're down for that amount of time. And depending on where you are, you've got hotels in there. You've got extra food in there. You've got a lot of extra expenses that start really hammering you over something as stupid as, like I say, a starter seems like it's just a simple thing, but it doesn't seem like that anymore. Yeah, it's not like if you're sitting, you're not just not getting paid, you know, all that's coming out of your pocket. Um, I know, Rooster, you were a lease operator for a while. What's the longest you've ever waited for a part? Actually, uh, right before I stopped driving, you know, joined up with a uh, back the truck up, I was up at Denver and I lost the uh, the knock sensor for the DEF on the output side. And I was in a hotel up, up at Firestone, Colorado for about two weeks, you know, waiting on a part to come in. Yeah, so if you're not rolling, you're not getting paid. That's that's why I was always, you know, hesitant to even try to go down the owner operator route. I, I think, you know, I've I've done my fair share of sitting around waiting on a part too. We um we had a brand new Freightliner Coronado, and the idiot at the TA on the first oil change of the truck tightened the uh, crush nut too tight and uh, put a crack in the oil pan, and uh, we had to wait. God probably about a week and a half on a brand new oil pan that came out of my company's pocket, not my pocket. And I think they eventually got it out of TA's pocket, but that, that takes a while to uh, get your money back on a deal like that. That's another complaint about the whole, you know, just being an owner operator, the way the world is nowadays is incompetence. It seems like at the end of the day, it's the truck driver or the trucking company. It, you know, and I know it's probably in all other aspects of life as well, but it just seems like, Every time there's a shortcoming, we're the ones that feel it. Every time someone, you know, cracks an oil pan, it's us that it hits. It's not, you know, it never goes back on them kind of thing. They just keep on working on the next guy's oil pan. But us, it just, you know, it seems like we always bottom of the list. Yeah, my dad kind of had a bad feeling when we uh, stepped out of the truck. He was watching one of the mechanics working on a different truck. And the guy would, like, pick up something off of his tool cart, look at it and go, huh, and then put it back down. And then pick something up, turn it over, look at it, go, huh, and then put it back down. And we were eating breakfast the next day after we noticed the crack in the oil pan. My dad says, I bet you that guy has never seen half the stuff in that shop before in his life. That was probably his first or second day on the job. <laughs> yeah, Rooster, what do you do you have any stories about like somebody uh screwing up your truck? Not my truck per se, but another carrier I was driving for at time back when I was company. Uh had some engine problems, had to put my truck in the shop in Lancaster, Texas. And everything was all fine and well. Right when they got everything put back together on the truck and they fired the truck up, the head come off the top of the engine. The mechanic had left a deep well three-quarter inch socket inside the uh, cylinder. And when he fired it up, about pissed and pushed that 
push that socket up through the head. Yeah, that that was a really good deal. That'll do it. Oh. So you said you guys have been driving for 15 years. Were you driving solo before that, or you've only been driving together? Uh, uh, I used to drive before that. I've been driving basically since I was 12 years old on the farm kind of thing. And then in Canada, you're able to get your CDL at 18. So I got my CDL at 18. I'm currently 45. So I've there hasn't been much in trucking I haven't done, honestly, not to brag or anything, but I've been around a couple of days anyway. Well, I think once you've been in any industry that long, you know, you have every, you have every right to brag. I know you're not, you don't own your truck anymore now. Um, what are you guys doing going forward from this? Uh, I've actually uh, got a job starting here Monday. Basically, it's a local gig, work seven to five, delivering rental equipment like skid steers and such like that around uh, the city limits kind of thing. And then the company that we were leased on to, I worked there on the weekends, just uh, filling in whenever they need an extra driver to do a run over the weekend kind of idea. And not to like, it's your personal business, but are you going to be making the kind of money you were when you were owner operator or is this going to be more or less money? Oh, this will be a a real hard uh, take. Like we're going to be going down in income by quite a bit, depending on the day though, honestly, like there was some months here in the past where we would have made more money at company driver than we did as owner operator. So it's kind of hard to say what it's going to turn into over the long haul and the way things are aimed in the industry. It might be, we might be actually making more money than what we would have made as owner operators. Hmm. And what are you saying about owner operators probably making more money as a company driver right now? It's true. I mean, with the rates down near the record lows as they are, I mean, you know, going through the freight waves data this week, we did, we small like a saw like a three cent gain in the, national average rate this week which i mean that's not going to help anything with fuel still high as it is but a lot of people are jumping ship out of the owner operators position going to company drivers and local ltls you know to be home every night i mean you know a hole in the wallet but you know you're at least you're home at night you know having to deal with the hassle well it's there's a whole bunch going on with it's not just the fact of like there's a whole package of why a lot of us are getting out and like in our and Carrie in our case, like this last episode here, that like we're not broke. We didn't we didn't go bankrupt. We didn't uh you know, we've got enough money to keep on going. It was just the the straw that broke the camel's back kind of idea. Like there's just so much going on where especially as being an owner operator, everything everything costs you. There's nickel and dime, you know, you need a yeah. You need a permit all of a sudden because you got to try them. You need a permit because you got beacons on your truck. Oh, you want to keep working? Well, you need a vaccine. Oh, you got your vaccines. Well, that's good for you. Awesome. I'm happy you did that. Oh, you got that vaccine. I'm sorry. You're going to have to get another vaccine because we don't accept that vaccine. Um, you know, logbooks have been live ever since I've been legal to drive. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, now you have to buy this piece of equipment for your truck. And you got to pay a monthly subscription just to be on e-log and i have nothing against being on e-log it's just that every time you turn around there's just something else that you need another permit that you need another expense that you need another add-on that you need just to do a job that 20 years ago you turned a key and away you went you know i need my live can now just to get into the country i need i just and you got to keep up with all this stuff here's you know you just got to keep up with what what's happening tomorrow you don't know until it comes you just can't plan your day and if you show up 
at the border for instance you don't have the arrive can app all of a sudden they're threatening a five thousand dollar charge it's like you know you already got enough stuff to worry about with your load with your truck with your trying to be down the road safely and now you've got to worry about do i have the right vaccine did i make sure to log into arrive can did i you know it's like just an added (laughs) stress on your already stressful day and also to add on, you know, uh, you have insurance rates rising, you know, you, you got to take on extra riders, you know, you need a thirty, forty thousand $40,000 rider. If you get, get in a wreck, get towed now, you need another twenty or $30,000 rider. If you have a, a spill cleanup, you have to do like, uh, you know, that load of, what was it, Justin, a hot dog filler that spilt the other month, you know? Yeah. You know, you need, to, you need an insurance rider for that, you know, twenty or $30,000 cleanup fee. You know, it, 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 there's a lot of nickel and diming and being an owner operator, and it, it's kind of a hassle, especially now, you know. The worst part about that, too, is it's through no fault of your own. Like, you are humming along for years, you know, doing your job, and then stuff just gets piled on and piled on. And, you know, you, you buy it in EDL, put it in your truck, and, you know, the, the company that runs the software on that thing either didn't have a server paid off that month and they go under and all of a sudden now your edl doesn't isn't recognized legally you know that happened here in the the states what uh what company was that rooster that uh you know they just put out a release that if you have this in your truck you've got 30 days to get rid of it i want to say alion t but let's see yeah that was arion t eld that they they just had uh some issues with and all it was was like the the text was too hard for the uh, trooper to read when they pull you over. And so they just mandated this. That's not legal now. That was what I said before, you know, like you don't have the right vaccine. You can't go to work. You don't have the right e-log. You can't go to work. You know, you do everything properly. You do everything, you know, you do your best to, you know, get in line and follow all these mandates and orders. And all of a sudden the next day they're like, nope, we just changed our mind. That's not a good anymore. Now you have to go spend more money and time. And every time they do something like this, if I need a new e-log because this one's no longer legal, well, now i got to take time out of my day, shut my truck down, and not make any money while I'm getting it installed and getting all this stuff worked on is still more money out of my pocket as a small-time guy. Yeah, it's just one thing after another. Um, yeah, the, back, the vaccine stuff is interesting because we don't have – you know, certain states did have – stricter rules in other states, but I think Canada just went absolutely bonkers with it. Um, I don't see how they expected anything to move back and forth across the border with how tightly they were restricting drivers coming in and out of the country. I can't really touch on that. Uh, I don't really follow much of uh, politics and how everything went down that way. I try to kind of keep away from that. I got enough stress as it is just trying to keep my own wheels turning without (laughs) figuring out what who said what and did what and why they did it kind of thing. But I thought it was a pretty stupid, it honestly makes no sense. The only thing I can say about it is they kept preaching this whole vaccine and COVID and all that stuff. They kept preaching that you got to get vaccinated to save yourself. Well, it's like wearing a seatbelt. If I'm wearing a seatbelt, I'm protecting myself. If you're not wearing a seatbelt, the only one you're going to hurt is yourself. So why do I care if you don't wear a seatbelt? If I'm wearing mine, I'm protecting myself from you. Same thing with the vaccine. If I'm vaccinated, if it's as good as what they say it is, if you're not vaccinated, why does it matter? What's it going to affect me if it's as good as what they say it is? Yeah. And even, you know, 
the politics and efficacy of the vaccine aside, you know, I'm, I'm vaccinated, but every, it was like every other month they would change the rules. You know, you can't keep up with uh, all the new mandates or, you know, things that they had you do to, to, to keep moving. I, you know, we talked a little bit with Gord uh, last week about this and yeah, like a lot of guys just, you're out of the country and you can't get back in or vice versa because of uh, the rules when you went across were one thing and when you try to get back, now it's, now it's different. And that's what we ran into as well. Carrie was always on the internet. Just finding out, it's like, oh, we're going to a new place. What are the rules here? What does this customer want today? Or what does... It was always, you know, not just an added stress again, you know. Like and, and like I say, the reason why we went out of business wasn't this last kick in the can kind of thing. It was just the final straw of everything that's been going on lately. And it just, it's been wearing us down little by little to the point where we were just you know what, we're done. And at this point, like our truck's not even running properly. We dropped it off at the auction yesterday. We took it out of the shop after paying $50,000 to do a brand new platinum Detroit in-frame. And it kept throwing codes. They kept throwing more parts at it and adding to the bill and adding to the bill. And more time, more time. We've been down almost two months here. And it just got to the point of we took out of the shop and the truck literally didn't even start outside their bay i had to fire up my apu just to start the truck after just paying fifty thousand dollars i drove it 500 kilometers to the auction yesterday bobtail that started throwing codes to the point where it was so it had so little power as a bobtail i couldn't even pull a, a slight grade at highway speeds it's and you know like where do you draw the line of do you keep on throwing parts at it till they figure it out you know, I felt like it was a episode of House. It's like, well, maybe it's lupus. I don't know. This <laughs> <laughs> kept going and going. Like, do we spend another twenty thousand dollars to chase this problem and finally get it fixed, or is it going to be a twenty-five dollar plug that is the issue? It just you don't know where to go or where to stop. And so, how old was this truck? It was. It's a twenty nineteen Freightliner Cascadia. <laughs> it had, it had hey, I so, know that model. <laughs> so it's not like this was like an old beater or anything. You're talking about a, a three-year-old truck, and you know it's just everything's falling apart on it already. And it was everything like in the last, since uh, the first of January of this year. Carrie and I have put just about ninety thousand dollars into that truck, Jeez. and it runs like a bag of crap right now Jeez. yeah I, that's why i was always so you know averse to going down the owner operator route you know my last couple of years with the postal service we got a, a fleet of brand new internationals same deal with those you know they got all kinds of issues with them the problem with the postal service was that it was all under warranty so they couldn't even fix it themselves they would have to send the truck back to the dealership wait for the dealership to get parts and then the, and then have the truck sent back. So just at the plant that I worked at in Philadelphia, you know, we were down easily 20 trucks within the first six months that they, they got them to us. You know, we'd get them in, something would break, send it back. Instead of taking our guys, you know, the two weeks to get it done, it would take like two months for the uh, dealership to do anything. And that's if they even had the part. And then right before I left, parts were getting so hard to come by that trucks that had any issues with the, the DEF system, they just started hot wiring a bypass. They would have a, um, a sign on the dashboard saying, hey, your truck runs on DEF. We've disabled the DEF gauge. So every day do like a manual visual check so you don't run out of DEF going down the road. Yeah, it's, and that's, you know, that's where it's at. You know, and that's what's killing. It's not so much 
fixing a truck, we've always had to fix trucks. We've always had to put parts in the trucks. It's, it's the time. It's the lack of parts. We've got a buddy of ours that is literally in the same boat. He's just starting the, the situation we just went through, and he can't get parts for his truck right now. He needs to do an in-frame on his truck, and he can't find parts. Yeah, and I mean, you, you guys are just, you're the small guys. This is the federal government. You know, they can't even get parts for themselves. It, it's a sad world, and, you know, I do feel that it's almost uh, stacked against owner operators it might be a conspiracy theory kind of idea but if you kind of look at how everything's been going you look at some of these big companies they're buying up all these little companies um like i can't fix my truck because i can't get parts for it i can't buy a new truck because there's no trucks to buy um in canada here some of the dealerships if you do want an order a truck it's 18 to two 18 months to two years to order a truck and you have to put 50% down to buy that truck with no guarantee of when you sign on the line to order that truck at, call it $180,000, that might not be what you pay for that truck. It might be $250,000 by the time it lands. And, you know, there's just, if you can get a slot to even order a truck as a small-time guy that has one or two trucks, because these mega carriers, they're going to be walking in and ordering they're going to eat up every slot there is to order these trucks because they need their trucks. And they, being that they buy so many trucks, they're going to be way ahead of a small-time guy. So I feel that, honestly, in the future, that owner-operators are going to be pushed out. Yeah, I definitely see it going in that direction. A couple of weeks ago, we talked with Ingrid Brown about exactly that. She said that, you know, guys were selling their slots. Like there's, there's almost more money to be made in selling your slot than there is buying the truck and using the truck to make money at this point. It's kind of unfair, honestly, like that. It's just the way it's gone, but it's been kind of that way for years. Like when Karen and I started in uh, being, doing our team driving, we had our own authorities. We had our own customers. We did everything on our own. And, uh, we started looking at it and even being on our own as hundred percent independent, there was no money in it. The cost of our insurance was way more just having one truck. The cost of our fuel was way more cost of permits were more um, just trying to run down the highway and, you know, deal with customers. And I was lucky because there's always two of us in the truck. So one of us could actually deal with that kind of stuff as we're going down the road. But if it turned out that we had to start chasing money because a customer didn't pay their bill, well, now you have to take time off for court proceedings and filings and stuff like that. And it started to the point where paying a bigger company 15% just to do all that headache, you know, like as an owner operator, you're just basically a glorified employee. You own your own truck, but every two weeks your check comes in no matter what. Yeah. I, you know, conspiracy or not, I think that's just, the nature of how these things go over time, the big get bigger, the small get smaller. That's just, unless something completely radical happens, you know, that's just how things go in any kind of iterative game over time. Sad to say. And I, I think COVID was really an accelerant for all these things, any kind of vulnerabilities or weaknesses in any supply chain, security, whatever, you name it. Something that would have taken five, 10, 15 years now showed up in like six to eight months. You know, if, if things weren't working perfectly, you were going to find out almost immediately uh, thanks to COVID now. I agree with that. And I almost think that 
everything that was that went down because of COVID. I'm not saying that COVID wasn't a deadly disease, but I feel like they almost used that as a stepping stool to uh, gain control kind of thing. Like it just seemed like uh, they were able to find something that scared the public enough that they were able to come in and take way more control than what they've ever had kind of thing. Like in Canada, for instance, like we heard whispering of COVID when it first hit, everything was fine. We were in Quebec at the time. Everything was fine. Everyone was walking around. Everybody was, you know, doing their thing. And then uh, within three days, we crossed the country to get to our load delivered. And within three days, the entire country was literally shut down. People were scared of, like, it was almost watching The Walking Dead. People were scared of other people. People were crossing the street if you were walking down the road. Uh, you know, businesses were closed. Bathrooms were closed. Like, it took three days to shut down the entire country. And something like that's got to kind of give your head a shake of, wow. Like, you know, like, it just, that it happened that quickly. Say I'm a early 20-year-old right now trying to get into the industry. What direction would you try to tell them to go into now? Would you tell anyone to ever look into being an owner-operator, or is it just go go with a big company and, and get paid? I wouldn't want, like, I, I don't want to be that person that uh, sours somebody from wanting to, to, you know, achieve their goals. Like, I'm not saying that, you know, I've never, as an owner operator, I never looked down on someone that was a company guy. You're just a company guy. You're scum. You know, a truck driver is a truck driver. As far as I'm concerned, we're all team. You know, I don't care what colors on your door. We, I always felt, I always ran old school kind of thing. It was, if I could help you out, I helped you out kind of thing. Uh, so souring someone coming into this business, I wouldn't want to do. I would try to give the best advice. Um, but really even the advice that I would have nowadays isn't, isn't valid anymore. You know, you could do the best you can and, uh, look at companies, look at how they treat the drivers and stuff like that. And that doesn't work anymore. Uh, you could look at the rates, you could look at what the freight they haul and be like, Oh, well they haul groceries. Well, everyone's got to eat. So if I buy a truck and put it on with this company, I'll definitely have work, but that doesn't work anymore because you're just going to go and hire the cheaper guy that can do it. And you're still sitting with an empty box. So it's so hard to do. It's so hard to say. And even if I can carry a nice case, we worked our butts off. We bounced back and forth all the time. Like we had reloads before we were unloaded. Uh, we never hauled cheap freight. We, you know, we felt we did everything proper. We did everything Work like I say, we worked really hard. We've been homeless for six and a half years, living in the truck just to have that out of the. We didn't never had to get home, so like home was wherever we set the park break. So we were always ready and available to go to work. The only time we took time off or shut down was when the truck needed to be worked on. So, you know, I don't know what the answer is to tell a twenty-year-old going into this of how to how to make a go of it or how to be an owner operator. Cause I don't think there is an answer anymore. Some will make it, some won't, um, you know, and if you do make it, honestly, I don't know how many owner operators are out there that are really making a good living or are they just doing it because it's their dream. And you know, it's like an abusive relationship. 
you keep thinking that you know he said he won't hit me again a hundred times well maybe this time it'll be true well the receiver said they weren't gonna rate me this time maybe this time it'll be true and i kind of feel the trucking is kind of gone to that it's an abusive relationship where you keep going back hoping that the next round will be the better one all right you asked you you said a very important phrase cheap freight jason please define in your own words what cheap freight is to you cheap freight is uh just like we hold flat deck we hold equipment like that and stuff like that and you know like we knew what our numbers were so you know what it costs for that truck to run down the highway per mile well if you're running for anything less than i feel 30 points over what your running costs are you're running for cheap freight you know if you're uh people that'll take well i'll just uh, take this load here to get over to where there's a better paying load just to pay my fuel well by doing that you're not helping anybody else out because now that shipper or receiver knows that eventually someone's going to take that load cheaper than you know it should go for so they'll just leave it on the dock till somebody takes it for basically nothing just to get them to the more better paying load but eventually that better paying load is never going to be there anymore and everything's just going to be cheap freight like we just as truck drivers we hurt ourselves by uh valuing ourselves so low yeah and the problem now is we have you know, a huge influx of owner operators because at the beginning of COVID freight rates were a lot higher than they are now. So people kind of saw the dollar signs and rushed out and bought trucks and that drove up the price and drove down the supply or they drove down the inventory of available vehicles. And now with rates lower than they've been in years, people are realizing, Oh crap, you know, I've got this truck that I can't afford to pay and fuel is, you know, it's more expensive than it's ever been. And now they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. So they're trying to get whatever they can. You know, it's, it's one thing to say, yeah, don't pick up this cheap freight, but it's like, if that's all there is, that's all there is. It's unless everybody just kind of parks for two or three weeks and waits for prices to come back up. I don't understand. I don't, I have no idea what else there is to do to try and get rates back up. I honestly don't know what the answer would be there either. Uh, yeah, in our case, like I say, we we refuse to haul cheap freight. I don't like, but there's no way of getting away from cheap freight. You know, someone's going to haul it cheap. Someone's going to, you know, you're not going to end cheap freight and trucking altogether. You see all these truck drivers that, like you just said, you know, well, let's park for two weeks. They'll learn that, you know, we're in control kind of thing. Well, we tried that in Canada. And look, that turned out, you know, it didn't go too well for anything kind of thing right so you know and honestly it's kind of an unfair thing to say too like it's the industry that makes the rates cheap well if i park my truck for two weeks i'm hurting you know the janitor that needs to buy supplies so he can go to work i'm hurting you know the person that works at 7-eleven that can't buy fuel because i decided to park my fuel truck and not deliver freight it seems like it's not the the people that make the freight rates aren't the ones that are going to feel the sting. It's going to be the you, me, and, you know, the average Joe that's going to feel the trucker's parking kind of thing. And then at the end of the day, we're just back to being the a-holes that ruin the world because, you know, every time you see the trucker, it's like, well, 
he's an a-hole. He's, he didn't deliver toilet paper this week. You know, it's funny. I was listening to your earlier interview with Dooner uh, on what the truck, and you mentioned how delivering to like any random Walmart, you know, you're in there and they just want you out immediately. You know, you can't park overnight. The townships might have sound ordinance. It's like, there's no appreciation for the driver bringing everything they need. Whereas you go into these small communities up on the ice roads and they're like, Oh sweet. The driver's here. You know, we're, we're actually getting our stuff this week. And that was actually a welcome change. It was really nice, you know, doing the ice roads and seeing, uh, just seeing, you know, it was a whole different world, a whole different level of respect. Um, as a truck driver, everywhere you go, you get, it just seems like you get, you're just scum. You're just the scum of the earth. You're in everyone's way. You know, you're just, even if you're doing your job delivering to Walmart, it's like, well, I could have been doing something else other than unloading you, but whatever, you're here, so I'll do that. But yeah, when you're up on the ice roads, like you were, you were heroes. You were, you know, like back, same as when we were back in the day, you know, kids used to look up to us and, you know, and that's how it was. You roll in the town. By the time you got to the customer, everybody in town knew you were there and people were running down streets and smiling and cheering and arm pumping. And, it, you know, they're inviting you over for a meal. They're talking to you. They're, you know, treating you like a human being, which shouldn't be such a, a shock or a welcome joy kind of thing. But honestly, it really was. Yeah, and the closest I have to anything like that was when I was hauling military freight. You know, you get to some of these places and, you know, you're, you're delivering, you know, whatever it is that they need. But, like, there actually is a real appreciation for what you're bringing. Whereas you go to, like, any grocery warehouse, you're just it's like, oh, great, another truck that I got to, you know, take two hours to unload. <laughs> um, I always had this gut feeling with the ice road that the show, you know, once, once the show Ice Road Truckers came out, I, I would hear rumblings about, the show itself was like ruining the job up there. It used to be a great gig. It was really hard to get into. Rates were really high. But then I would hear rumors that like now rates were falling faster than they'd ever been. And you had a bunch of brand new knuckleheads up there because everybody <laughs> wanted to be either not so much on the show, but you know, they, they would see the show and they'd go, Oh, that looks awesome. I want to try that out. And they get up there and they're just screwing up left to right. Was there any like legitimacy to that? Or is it just, you know, all rumors? Oh, hundred percent that was you know it's it's the stigma right because of the show ice road trucking has been out there ever since like uh, since the beginning of trucking kind of thing but until the show came out nobody knew about ice road trucking as soon as the show comes out oh my god it's the coolest thing ever and of course you know on the show they dramatize it and it make it look so cool but otherwise nobody would watch it it's no different than like watching license to drill you know, it looks like an awesome career to go do, and it looks like a lot of fun, but I've done that too, and it's it's not like they portray on TV. So, yeah, I got a bunch of people out there that just wanted, you know, anybody you talk to, it's like, oh, my God, I'd love to go on the ice roads, or, you know, my goal is to drive on the ice roads just to say I did it, and it's just the stigma. So people will come out for a season that aren't in, they don't have the proper reasoning, I guess you could say, and they just come out there just to basically ruin it for the rest of us. And because of that, it has lowered the rates by a lot. It has changed uh, the rulings out there. It's made it more dangerous. You've got a lot of people that have no business being out on the ice roads that 
don't know how to chain up, don't know how to mm-hmm. follow the proper rules. Uh, and it's making it take longer and putting everybody else at risk that actually knows what they're doing. It sounds exactly like Mount Everest, the same exact problem there. It's become such a huge tourist attraction, so to speak, now that bodies are piling up because it takes so long for people to get to the summit that you know guys would run out of oxygen before they get there. And then, sure, on a, on a good year, maybe everybody gets there and, and, and makes it back. But on a bad year, you know, a storm will come through, strand 20 people, and then you've got a dozen corpses up on that mountaintop. Uh, the thing about the chaining is uh, very interesting. My first time going up and over Do- uh, Donner in the uh, Donner Pass in the, in the winters, you know, we had a pullover chain up and I'm not the best driver as far as that kind of stuff goes, but you know, I did, I did the best I could. I, I put the chains on myself and, you know, got up and over, I, pr- I probably did like six or seven trips up and over in the snow and ice on Donner Pass. But what I thought was hilarious is my first time up there, you would have these guys in box trucks that they'd rented out parked on the shoulders and the, the back of these trucks would just be packed with chains. And for you know, 20, 30 bucks, they'll just put the <laughs> chains on for you. But they did it so sloppily that you would go down the road and you would just see chains slung off all over the place. And I guarantee you there was somebody else in a car or another truck going by and scooping up every single one of those chains. <laughs> That'd be good to make a couple extra bucks. I was so dangerous too, like loose chains, you'll rip off brake pods, you'll rip off fenders, loose chains snap, you know, like, so you've got, you know, chain fragments falling off your truck and could be going through the windshield of somebody. Uh, that shouldn't be allowed, and that's kind of a, a scumbag move doing that kind of stuff. I, I My thoughts are, though, if you're going to run that route, then you should make sure you're able to run that route knowing that you've got to throw on chains make sure you you know know what you're getting into make sure you've got the proper equipment make sure you've got the proper clothing make sure you've got the proper experience and if you don't know what you're doing find somebody that does and just get them to show you you could do it in the middle of july just to you know know what's going on it's a lot better to throw chains on in the middle of july than it is in minus 40 when you're freezing your butt off get it down to a science so that way when you are in minus 40 you can do it smoothly yeah, trying to hire qualified people is such a challenge right now. And we would run into the same problem at like every company I worked for. You can lie on a job application, you can cheat a drug test, and you can BS your way through a face-to-face interview. You cannot lie about being able to back up a 53-foot trailer into a dock. And why that isn't one of the first things that they test for when hiring a new driver, I have no idea. That's actually something that I just... Because I haven't had a job in 20 years. So I just started applying at jobs here, going out of business here. So, you know, 20 years ago, I never applied for a job. I never looked through the help wanted ads. I never looked for a help wanted sign on a, um, on a business or anything. I would just drive down the street and be like, hey, I think I want to work for those guys. Walk in the door. Y'all hiring? Well, I don't know. Start talking to the guy, and it's like, well, you know, you didn't have to sell you like nowadays, you have to sell yourself on paper. It's so hard to sell yourself on paper. I know what I can do, and I can show you what I can do. And 20 years ago, that's what it was. You walk into a place, it's like, all right, we'll throw you to work. How much do you want to get? What do you want per hour? It's like, well, put me to work. At the end of the day, you tell me what I'm worth. You know, it's not cocky, it's not, it's confidence. I know what I can do. I'll show you what I can do. And 
you pay me accordingly. Nowadays, it, you got to prove yourself on paper. You got to sell yourself on paper. And I'm actually having a hard time with that. I just don't know how to articulate on paper or put into words what I can do. But you throw me in a truck, and you'll know five minutes what I can do and that I'm experienced. Exactly. You see some of these contractors at uh, postal plants, it takes them 20 minutes to back into a door. And any other seasoned driver, a minute. So that's 20 times uh, more productivity than the other guy, but everybody's getting paid the same. And if they can't back into a dock, what are they doing on the highway? You know, if their skills are that low that they can't even get it into a dock, what other skills are they lacking? What other hazards are you putting by putting that driver on the road? What other hazards have you just added to everyone else's day? Yeah, we always jokingly called those uh, Class F drivers because they can only drive forward. (laughs) That's understandable. I've seen it, but... To be fair, and I don't understand this, I've been driving truck for a lot of years, and until just recently, I've never pulled a van. I've always done, like I've done multiple trailers, I've done 140,000 pounds, I've done 240,000 pounds, I've done wheelers, jeeps, boosters, pulled joints, pulled oversize. I've done a ton of stuff in my driving career, and until recent this winter, I had never pinned up to a van. I didn't even know how to locked the doors open on a van it was kind of funny i was actually (laughs) driving along and i opened the doors and there was a couple hooks where you put the chains in so i put the chain in the hook went to drive away door flopped closed again it's like so i get out and i go and i clip it back onto the little post on the side of the trailer door flopped open again so do it again and i'm like well what's going on like i don't understand this right and the third time it happened this other guy was watching the whole scenario that was back into a dock comes over he's like haven't been driving long have you <laughs> over 25 years in and he shows me he's like well you got to put this chain here up over underneath this little bar and onto the hook i'm like really such a simple aspect didn't even know how to do it and i told the guy you know what i had for experience is like most people start with vans i'm like yeah i'm going the other way i'm just kind of slowing down for <laughs> retirement but uh just something as simple as that right so i've never pulled vans and uh, it's a different aspect as well, right? But what I've found out pulling vans is how tight those docks are and how tight those yards are to back a van into. <laughs> and then you see these guys in truck stops and they're taking up three spots. It's like, dude, I see what you guys have to do to get get loaded. Why can't you park in a truck stop but yet you can get that van between two other vans with only two inches on either side of the van and you're not hitting those vans? And you're still bumping the dock, but yet you're taking hoods off in parking lots. What what gives? Uh, the only thing I could say is maybe after five, six hundred miles on the, on that day, you're just wiped. You know, not not to excuse that kind of behavior, but I get it. But you're still kind of a prick. <laughs> well, well the, well, the defend van drivers out there, you know, uh, the spots in a truck stop are narrower than ones at a dock. So yeah. That's just good practice right there, you know. If you can if you can back into a, a truck stop, like that guy that just got arrested at that loves, first thing I did was Google the address for it. It's a tiny little uh, gas station on Route 30 south of South Bend. And yeah, I can absolutely see why they got sick and tired of that guy being that being in that shower for four hours. It's a tiny truck stop. Some of the places that they 
make drivers park now. I just, even even with my experience, I'm like, oh, thank God I don't have to go there anymore. Uh, sometimes you don't have the option. So, like, I don't know. I've never really ran to the States. And I hear that they've got a lot more uh, parking and stuff like that in the States, a lot more uh, amenities for truckers in the States. In Canada, we have, I feel we have a lock, a lack of parking. Um, some of the province we travel in, you don't see a place to park for four hours. And if you do, it's just a dirt little wide spot on the road kind of thing. No outhouses, no bathrooms, no yeah. nothing. I, I had a little bit of experience going up to the great white north uh, through Schneider, but it was mostly... You know, Eastern Ontario, uh, I did a couple trips into Quebec, and then I did a bunch of trips into Winnipeg. And, yeah, there's, like, you know, especially Winnipeg, there's, like, a, I think one little truck stop there, not a whole lot of parking, and then it's just nothing for thousands of miles around. Uh, the first time I went to Quebec, you know, when you're in Ontario, all the signs and everything, everything's English and French, but then you get to Quebec, and it's all French. And the first, let's see, I, I did a trip. It was three nights in there. So I'm, I'm hauling a load of trailer parts and I'm going to all these um, trailer repair shops. And so I spent three nights on that route up in Canada. And the two nights that I was in Quebec, uh, I just ate lasagna on the menus because that was the only thing I could read. <laughs> uh, my wife and I, we were Canadians. And, you know, and quite honestly, until we started doing long haul, I never really uh, thought about it and never really affected me. But I honestly feel quite ignorant of, as a Canadian, being that we're a bilingual country, that I never learned how to speak French until I started doing long haul and going to Quebec. I don't know a word of French. And I feel that I'm kind of ignorant and disrespectful because I didn't learn to speak, you know, the two languages we have in our country. And, you know, you go to Quebec, well, you expect them to speak English to you because you don't speak French. But yet, if you know, I had a job as a receiver over here and somebody from Quebec came over here, you would think that, you know, it would be, you know, only fair that I could speak French to them. Like they would expect me to speak French all of a sudden. And I just felt like it's kind of two-faced that, you know, I expect something out of them that I couldn't do myself. And it just kind of got you to thinking that, huh, there is, you know, there, the world's a lot bigger than you kind of place yourself kind of deal. Yeah, when we go to Quebec, it's a lot of grunting, and and I found in Quebec too that if you uh, if you tried to uh, you know speak the language or tried to show that uh, you were doing the best you could, then all of a sudden they could speak pretty good English kind of thing, and they would work with you. But if you came in there and just didn't try at all, then all of a sudden they didn't under they just looked at you like you had three eyes, like they purposely wouldn't interact with you and it'd be just a hundred percent French and they just kind of their attitudes would just totally change kind of thing. Yeah. I, I, I experienced that 100% when I was there and most of the time you're, you show up, you show them your, your papers and they're like, Oh, okay. We know we haven't seen you before, but we've seen this truck before. So they, they knew what I was bringing. But what I always found funny was I would hear them talk back and forth to each other in French but it still had a Canadian accent. Like I, I grew up in South Florida and so vacation communities down there and it, they, they speak a, a type of French, a little bit of Creole. And so I'm hearing the difference between, you know, Haitian Creole and Canadian French. And so like they'd be speaking French, but they still said, eh, which I thought was funny. <laughs> well, and Canadian French isn't really French either. It's kind of like, you know, 
our English isn't English. Like the Queen's English, what the British speak is the proper English. Well, we speak slang. Well, same thing with Quebec French. It's just slang kind of thing. That's a, of English today. You know, England, the Queen's English back then is, from what I've read, it's it's more Americanized. It was more, it sounded more American back in like the founding days of America. And then over the centuries, they had a vowel shift. And that's how you get the current British accent today. Northern England migrated to Southern US and Southern England migrated to the North. And that's how the accents were originally distributed. Okay. Yeah. A little little history on the Back the Truck Up podcast. (laughs) Yeah. And I was an Air Force brat. I grew up all over the country and I learned to speak in Texas. So I had a really deep Southern draw uh, growing up. And then we, we moved to Indiana when my dad retired from the Air Force. And, you know, up there it's the Midwest. It's a very flat accent. And everybody was like, you talk funny. And I'm like, y'all talk funny. And it just kind of, you know, like I mellowed that out over time and then moved to South Florida uh, in my teens and huge, huge melting pot down there. I mean, you're talking every kind of culture, nationality you, you can think of. And, but everybody had like the same kind of Americanized accent. Then once I started going over the road, you know, you, you go into any town and you're immediately an outsider. You know, you have to learn very quickly to not so not make so much of an ass of yourself while you're there. You're, you're a guest. People appreciate your business, but like don't embarrass yourself while you're out there. <laughs> That's kind of funny how that works. We've got it in Canada, too. Like, I don't know if you you've ever heard of like the Newfoundlanders kind of thing. Like their English is Newfoundlanders don't even understand Newfoundlanders. Oh, they're, yeah. They're the nicest people you have ever met. Like until Karen and I started doing Highway Hall, like Fort McMurray is like uh, Alberta's version of Newfoundland because everybody from Newfoundland was in Fort McMurray kind of thing. So, you know, you dealt with them. You always, and I always had Newfoundlanders working for me, and they were the, the hardest workers we ever had. But until we started doing Highway Hall, we'd never been on the East Coast. And Canada's always known as, you know, everyone's so nice in Canada. Well, if that's the case, the East Coast is like the Ned Flanders of Canada. Those guys will give you the shirt off their back to a complete stranger, and we've seen it. Like Karen and I parked in a parking uh, in a, a customer's driveway one evening kind of thing, knowing that we couldn't drop off till morning. This guy drives by that works at the place. He's like, oh, I'm sorry, mate. I, could, I can't unload you today. I feel so bad. They go, just jump in, and I'll, uh, I'll take you home. I'll get the missus to throw some food on for you. And we're thinking, wow, what? Like, I'm not going to jump in. <laughs> car to go to, you know, like the wife's going to throw something at this guy for throwing, showing up with two dirty-ass truckers kind of thing, right? So uh, he talks us into it, and we get in the car, and we get there. And it just felt like it was just the norm. Like, we walked in, and, you know, it's like, and we got two more spots to set out, and she just – went about sending out places like it happened every day like that there's just the norm kind of thing and just the way the east coast people are and you could tell east coasters just by their accent but uh yeah like there's just the nicest people you've ever met and they're great people to deal with yeah i would say on the whole the, the friendliest people i have ever met were definitely canadians but with one exception the worst case of road rage i've ever seen was a it's canadian <laughs> Uh, it was it was in it was in golf ontario i was leaving the schneider yard and they had all these construction vehicles out there i'll make i get the light i'm making a left turn and this dump truck is just flying down the road and i'm already in the intersection making the turn 
but he was going so fast. He had to slam on his brakes to not run into me. And uh, I make the turn. I pull out. He comes flying past me on the left, just starts, he rolls his window down, and he's just chucking Tim Horton's cups at my at my windshield. <laughs> he was pissed. <laughs> I got to ask, was he Canadian, though? I would assume so. I mean, it was it was in Canada, and I, I just assumed. You know. Tim Horton's at you, because that is pretty quad <laughs> jacket throwing, throwing uh, Tim Horton's at you. Hockey stick that window. That was the that was the, the, the detail that stuck out the most to me. It was like, it was a guy wearing plaid and it just, you know, throws a Tim Horton bag at me and just coffee and everything hits my windshield. <laughs> I was like, this is, this is, this is the most Canadian thing that's ever happened to me. Canadian violence at its top. I'll throw a Tim Hortons at you, eh? <laughs> <laughs> now, Rooster, I know you, you walk into a room anywhere and you open your mouth and people like immediately peg where you're from. Yeah. Fortunately, the Southern accent, you know, you can't, you can't beat that. I mean, everybody knows what that is. Yeah, my mom's side of the family is from South Carolina. And you give me enough time down there, you know, I start dropping my G's and talking a little slower. And, you know, it, it comes it comes back to you. But now and now I'm in the Northeast uh, in the U.S. And the Jersey accent drives me nuts. Like the way that they – you'll be talking to somebody and they sound perfectly normal, but then they'll have, you know, one or two like trigger words that sound totally different. And you're like, What? But you adapt to that. You're talking about accents and stuff like that. It's kind of funny how you adapt and go back to things. I used to work on the oil rigs, and just the way you uh, talked and interacted with your crew kind of thing, you'd talk differently than you do at home kind of thing. And uh, you'd be at home, and one of the guys at work or whatever, from work would phone you up, and you, the, like the, your family would be sitting there in the kitchen, and you'd pick up your phone to talk to the people off the rig. And your whole demeanor would change, though. Your wording would change. The your tone would change, and they just look at you like, "Who's this guy?" Like I've never heard this guy talk like this ever. And now all of a sudden, you just took a phone call, and it's just like day and night difference, just because that's you know you go back to that world all of a sudden. Absolutely, yeah. And funny you say that. I, I did the exact same thing at work at the postal service. You know, you you, you come into work every day, and anywhere from five to six, maybe ten guys would be on the shift with you at the same time. And so you're in the office checking in, getting your keys and starting your day and you know, kind of shoot the shit for like half an hour. And yeah, I kind of, I would catch myself. I'm like, yeah, I totally, it's, it's like a more relaxed cadence. You're talking to guys in ways that you wouldn't talk to like your friends or family. And once in a while, maybe one of them would call me up and my wife is like, who the hell are you? <laughs> Yeah, it's funny how that works, but it's just your, your brain just goes back to what it's normal, right? Yeah. Is there anything else you guys wanted to talk about that we... Uh... Basically, I don't want to come across as that I'm souring the industry, souring owner-operator. You know, what happened to us was a misfortunate event. It could happen to anybody or it could happen to nobody. It You know, it just because you decided to become an owner-operator, that what happened to us isn't going to be your story or your fate. You know, a guy might be able to buy a truck or girl, sorry, could buy a truck tomorrow and rock it and everything, just all the stars align and everything will be good. Basically all I can say is just make sure you go. If you're coming into this industry as a company driver, as an owner operator, as anything, do your homework, talk to people that are in the industry, you know, try not to dwell on, Every truck driver is going to have a bad story. Every truck driver is going to have, 
a sob story of how horrible it is. Try not to look directly, read between the lines, I guess. You know, there's good to everything. Karen and I have had a really great life on the road as well, but we've also had a really crap life on the road. So there's good and bad. You know, it's not for everybody. It's a lot of sacrifices that you got to make to family, friends, to do the job. You have to want to do the job. You have to love the job to be able to do the job. And that's basically the reason why Karen and I got out of it is we fell out of love with the job. And it was time to go before we totally soured on everything kind of thing. Yeah. Any kind of relationship breakup is uh, is rough like that. So anyone who uh, wants to follow you guys online, uh, where can they reach you guys at? Uh, both of us are on Twitter currently. Um, you can My at is Jason and Trigger. My wife's at is at Carrie and Trigger. Uh, we're not on any other social medias, but we're there. And we're still going to keep you know, uh, going out, like we post everything about our life, whether it's, you know, we've been posting a lot of kind of sadder stuff here recently with, you know, taking decals off the truck and stuff. But yeah, as we go on, you know, we, we still do our vacation photos and videos and stuff. And we'll still, um, you know, we'll still have advice for people. We'll still have, we always try to keep an upbeat, uh, uh, demeanor on Twitter kind of thing. Like I say, the last couple of weeks have been a lot more gloom and droom kind of thing. But typically, we like to have fun on there and just, you know, be friendly and helpful. Yeah, keep on trucking. Uh, Brewster had a run, so it's just me signing off here. Uh, thank you for tuning in. You can find us online at backthetruckup.com, uh, at Twitter at backthetruck, uh, TikTok at backthetruckup. Uh, we will see you guys next week. Take care. Okay.